But you can turn with me your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. As we continue our studies in the book of Colossians. Today we're going to look at putting on the character of the new man. Colossians, chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17 this morning, but I'll begin reading at verse 1 to set the context. So Colossians 3, we'll begin reading at verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, and sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful for who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, for the righteousness that we have put on, that has been imputed to us. And now we ask as those who have been redeemed that we would put on uh, these things that you've called us to. May we put off our vices and put on these virtues. May we seek to cultivate these things by your word day by day. And as we interact with our families, as we interact with the church, and as we interact with the world, may we be a people who love one another, ultimately because we love you. And thank you again that you first loved us. Thank you again that Christ has forgiven us. Please forgive us for not being as forgiving as you have been towards us, but help us to grow in these areas. Help us to grow in these virtues. Help us to grow in our Christian walk but also in our love for our corporate gathering. So we pray that you would speak to us again this day, that you give us illumination from on high by your spirit, enlighten our hearts, enlighten our minds concerning the truth this day. There are many things that we still struggle to understand. There are things that we have so-called understood, but we still struggle to implement them. So we ask, oh God, that you would prick our hearts this day encourage, uplift, but also rebuke. And we pray that if there are any here today who do not know you, we pray that you would save their souls. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, at our wedding nearly 12 years ago, the passage that we read was Colossians 3 verses 12 through 17. And unfortunately, I ripped the Bible as we were reading it. 
but perhaps at that time we were wide-eyed and young and didn't know the work that God would do uh, in us in marriage. I think every newlywed is quite like that. They don't realize what's coming. They don't re realize the hardship of marriage. Uh, a lot of good things about marriage, but marriage is a difficult thing. And marriage is a good place where God sanctifies his people. And we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification in Colossians today. We talked about it last week. Certainly God sanctifies his people in all spheres of life, families, in the world, as we interact with the world and as we grow in the church. Uh, but marriage certainly is one of those places. Forbearance and forgiveness is greatly needed in marriage and all those other spheres I've mentioned as well. And Paul's emphasis here is that we all need to put on these virtues that he has mentioned. And certainly the testing place for that is in the family, uh, certainly as we interact with the world and the church as well. But as we consider the doctrine of sanctification, which is our Christian life, our Christian walk, there were two parts. Last week, I mentioned the mortification. We must put to death vices. We must put to death sin. We must daily put to death those things in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must put off the old man because we've already put off the old man. But today we see that quickening, that vivifying, that growing unto Christ day by day, what we must put off. And now what then we must put on. I remember the whole point of the book of Colossians is Paul is writing to combat heresy, combating false teaching that was making its way to Colossae, and he writes in the crux of the book, the main idea of the book is chapter 2, verse 6. As you've received Christ, so then walk in Christ. It's not in by faith, remain in by works, but as you enter in by faith, so then walk by faith but he still talks about how we ought to live in light of that truth and chapters three and four give us the application of the book of colossians he discusses our resurrection life who we are in jesus and how we ought then to live as resurrected people now there are still problems that arise for god's people in this fallen age and one of those problems is strife conflict battles families have strife Churches have strife, and as we interact with the world, we're going to have strife. God's people still have remaining corruption. We're going to sin against God, and we're going to sin against our family, fellow churchgoers, and the world. So how then ought we to live in light of that? How then ought we to live with the reality that we have some remaining corruption in this world? Well, we must put to death, which we looked at last time, but we must also put on virtues, Put on these characteristics of the new man that are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, what we put off, what we're not supposed to do. Today, what we must do. And these are commands that are given to God's people who've been redeemed in Christ Jesus. And so in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, it's all about putting on the new man. Putting on the characteristics of the new man. And to flesh that out, uh, uh, the fuller definition would be uh, we see God's chosen people are commanded to put on their new character because they are the new man in Christ Jesus. So the main point is how we ought to live the positive aspect in light of who we are in the Lord. So we'll look at this idea under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the character we wear in verses 12 through 14. And secondly, we'll see the peace that rules us, verses 15 through 17. So the character we wear 
and the peace that rules us. So let's first look at the character we put on in verses 12 through 14. Verses 12 through 14 give us our individual identity. Verses 15 through 17 give us our corporate identity. And the two go hand in hand. How we ought to live as people and how we ought to gather as people is also important throughout these verses. But let's see the character we wear or the character we put on. And notice we see the conduct of the elect in verses 12 through 13. Again, the context is our heavenly life died and raised with Christ, put to death the idolatrous remnants because we have put to death. Well, there's a similar connection here. That is, we have put on Christ, therefore put on these virtues. There's an important connection between what's called the indicative, the truth, and the imperative, which is the command in light of that truth. And again, the indicative is if you're in Christ, you've died, buried, been raised with him. You are the new man in him. We see that in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. You have put on the new man. You've been renewed in his image. Now, therefore, in light of that, put on the new man. (laughs) Put on these things. Put on the things that are becoming of the one who's redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And just as an aside, by the way, all of preaching is summarized by those two eyes: indicative, the truth, and the imperative. And to have full preaching, you have to have both. Because if you only have commands, then there's no truth. And then it becomes moralism and legalism. You have to have the truth. You have to have what Christ has done. You have to have who Christ is. You have to have who we are in Christ, and then how we ought to live in light of him. So the indicative, you've put on Christ, the imperative, now live as one who's put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the charge proper is put on these various things. But notice again, the status is highlighted first in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, those who've been chosen those who've been set apart before the foundation of the world and God is called in time and space, those who have that special privilege of being the ones holy, set apart, and the ones beloved, uh, highlighting that status again, the attributes of what you are, the basis for how you then ought to live. You are elect, you are holy, and you are beloved. And what this shows is the doctrine of election or predestination is not an excuse for laziness. It's not an excuse for licentiousness. For those who are predestined are called. Those who are called are also justified. And we could add those who are justified are also sanctified. And those who are sanctified will be glorified as well. They're all the benefits that Christ gives to us. Now, again, our standing before God is not based on what we do, but it's what God does for us. And sanctification is the work of Christ in us by the power of the spirit, our Christian walk. So you've been chosen, you've been redeemed, you've been saved. Now live as one who's been chosen, redeemed, and saved. One holy set apart. We saw how we've been set apart in chapter two, verse 11. You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. We've seen how we are beloved. We were once enemies, but now we've been reconciled. We have been chosen and loved in him. Therefore, here's how you ought to live. And what's interesting is the the words chosen, holy, and elect are used in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. 
Uh, nobody pointed that out except for G.K. Beale. He's the mastermind to figure out the connection between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, but all those words are used there, descriptive of Old Covenant Israel. And it was true. Old Covenant Israel, according to the Old Covenant, were chosen, were holy and set apart, and were loved. And as we've tried to point out, is that Old Covenant Israel is a type of the New Covenant Church. So it highlights, again, that we are the people of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout this book, Paul has tried to highlight the temple aspect, the temple language that Christ dwells and we dwell with him. That's going to come up again in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But we see this old covenant, new covenant connection here. Christ is the true Israel and we as the new covenant people are the new Israel in him. So that's an illusion. Uh, that's an echo back to Deuteronomy 7. And what he's saying here is, here's who you are. Here's then how you ought to live. And notice, put on various virtues. Now, that language of put on uh, comes from, from a, it's a clothing metaphor. Uh, you put off the old stuff and you put on the new man, how we adorn ourselves. Now, let's be honest, the physical clothing that we wear and the physical clothing that we observe in others reflects something about ourselves, doesn't it? We don't like to admit that, but we make judgment calls based on what people wear, right? <laughs> we do that all the time. We might assume someone's a slob. We might assume someone's pretentious. We might assume someone's put together based on what they wear physically. But how much more important spiritually? How much more important our character? How much more important ought we to adorn and put on the blessed things that are found in the Lord Jesus because of Christ and what he has done? If we are redeemed, here's then how we ought to adorn ourselves, how people ought to know us, how we ought to uh, live. What's the kingdom character we ought to exhibit? Now, we all struggle with this a lot. Thanks be to God for Christ, but we must day by day put these on. Notice what he says, five things in verse 12. He fleshes this further out in verses 13 and 14, but look at those five virtues. Notice he says, tender mercies. Perhaps this has to do with someone's disposition and concern for another person. Pity, empathy, sympathy. You are concerned for the other person's well-being. It's a disposition. It's an attitude towards them, a tender mercy. You mourn with those who mourn. Gregory Nazianzen says, if thou hast nothing, give but a tear, for pity is a great solace to the afflicted. So rather than concerned with yourself, rather than look down upon someone in their affliction, be concerned for their situation. And then the second word builds upon that kindness. It's not just a disposition, but also the desire to do something for them, of uh, being helpful, of engaging in beneficence, being good towards them seeking to dispel and take away the misery that they are in. So it's a disposition that leads to perhaps an action, but they're all virtues, qualities of acting rightly, merciful, kind, but also that third one, humility. It's unfortunate that uh, tender mercies and kindness can make us prideful, right? Uh, look how merciful I am. Look how kind I am. Am I just the greatest person uh, who walks the face of this earth? So we need humility as well. 
And humility teaches us that we ought to recognize and consider others better than ourselves. Philippians chapter 2 gives us that very clear definition of how we ought to live, considering others, not just ourselves, considering them better than who we are. It's actually slave-type language, and slaves really didn't have a whole lot of status. In fact, they had no status in the Greco-Roman world, and what he's saying is we need to be like slaves, be ready to serve other people, be ready not to receive the glory and praise, but be ready to serve others. So engage in humility, consider others better. Certainly all this, all these connect with one another and flow out of one another. So a disposition, a, a desire to do good and remove that, doing so with a recognition for their good and not to do it for yourself. But also we see the language meekness or the word meekness. And perhaps if humility is the idea we consider others better than ourselves, meekness is we don't view ourselves in such a great light. It's the opposite, perhaps, of that. Uh, the definition is not being overly impressed with ourselves. And perhaps this emerges when someone wrongs us and we think, how dare they? Do you ever think that way? How dare they? Because I'm such and such a person. I'm such and such a man. I have this sort of standing. We do that all the time, don't we? We, have, we are overly impressed with who we are. And when someone wrongs us, we think, how could those people do such a thing? Well, that's not how we're supposed to act. We must not be exasperated, as Davenant says, beyond measure. How could people do such a thing? We we'll have to be gentle, humble, courteous, and considerate. And what's interesting is several of these virtues are found in Galatians 5. If I were to ask you, where does the Bible speak about the fruits of the Spirit? You would all say Galatians 5, verses 22 through 26. They're not, it's not one for one, but there's still a lot of overlap. As we have to put off the old man and fight, it's more of the war aspect. We are our, our spirit wrestles against the flesh. But what are the fruits of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. We'll talk about that in a second. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, that's meekness, self-control. These are the fruits that we ought to cultivate and grow by the power of the Spirit and in God's Word. So not being overly impressed with ourselves, but considering others uh, better than ourselves. It's unfortunate we have a high view of ourselves more than we ought to. I struggle with that. I surmise you struggle with that as well. We all struggle with these things. Thanks be to God for Christ, but we can grow in these things uh, by the word. And then the last of those five in verse 12 is long suffering, bearing with others. He's going to unpack that more in verse 13. Uh, but what's interesting is especially the latter three or perhaps the latter two, it's all in the face of opposition. I like to think, sometimes we like to think if someone's wronged us, we can go tit for tat with them. They got mad at me. I can get mad at them. They were angry with me. I can get angry with them. That's not what the Bible says. It says if the idea of meekness is perhaps the idea that if someone insults you, don't think you're so great that you have to insult them back. Or then, then perhaps long-suffering is for more severe forms of mistreatment like persecution or being hurt or and so or various things to bear with that bear with them to be long suffering i mean the, the the word itself implies that long suffering we're going to suffer uh as we deal with those things I'm not saying there aren't times to flee and times to run but this is really in the context of family church 
and the world. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second, but we must bear with one another. We must be long-suffering with one another. We must be meek concerning ourselves. But all these things are cultivated and practiced in, with other people. And it's going to be in the context of when people hurt us and wrong us. I'm sorry to say that. And I'm sorry to burst your bubble with that, but Christians will wrong you. Christians will be mean to you sometimes. Christians won't be Christ-like. Remember, their, uh, their sins are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't always worry about what they do. We need to worry probably more about ourselves more than anything. And so those five virtues we must put on. All these things are musts. We must be tender hearted. We must be kind. We must be humble. We must be meek. We must be long suffering. And then verse 13 gives us how, uh, gives us where we manifest this. And again, the whole, uh, the, the latter part of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four gives us where we practice this church, 12 through 17, families, verses 18 to 4, 1, and the world, verses two through five. And notice we must forbear and forgive. And the implication is very clear. As I just said, the churches, families, and the world are going to hurt you. So you must forbear and forgive. That's tough, isn't it? <laughs> That's tough for the people of God, too, because we still have remaining corruption. So notice what he says. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, anyone has a complaint against another. Being patient. We ought to be willing to be patient with people who are growing in their understanding, who are growing. There might be different levels of sanctification. We must be patient with people. We were once at one spot. We don't, we're still growing. We must be kind and forbearing with them, bearing with their problems, bearing with their issues, bearing with their faults and hurts that they bring against you, but also to forgive others. That is to show oneself gracious by forgiving the wrongdoing. Doesn't mean everybody has to be the bestest friend all the time, but perhaps what he's trying to highlight here, it's the inward kind of desire for revenge. That has to be gone. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Davenant says, the apostle therefore would have us not only bear an injury, but remove from our hearts the very desire itself of revenge. That's what forgiveness does. It removes that desire for revenge that we should cherish a love for our most bitter enemies. Isn't that what we are commanded to do? To love our enemies? We were once enemies, dear brethren, and Christ loved us and died for us and has given us all we need by the power of the Spirit. And that's exactly what he says. Just as Christ forgave you. Any complaint there's going to be complaints, there's going to be quarrels, there's going to be strife, there's going to be problems. Forgive as Christ forgave you. Again, I'm not saying everybody has to be the bestest friends. I'm not saying there aren't legal issues and prudence to think of with that. But we must forgive. That's what we are called to do. Because Christ has forgiven us. We saw that in 2.13. He says, talks about how the handwriting of requirements was taken away. He has taken, or uh, sorry, verse 13, he has made us alive together, having forgiven you all your trespasses. He's forgiven you all your trespasses. And we can't forgive a little thing. 
we can't forgive a little wrongdoing. I know there's big wrongdoings, but sometimes we struggle forgiving little wrongdoings. Remember Christ our Lord as an example? I mean, was he not blasphemed? And was he not spat upon? And was he not reviled? And was he not ridiculed? And did he not suffer persecution? Was he not beaten? Did he not die upon that cross? Who did he do that for? And why did he do that? It was to take away our sins that we might have life with him. And if he died for us, if he bore all those things for us, we must be, bear, be able to forbear and forgive one another as well. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And then verse 14 kind of gives us the key virtue that kind of binds all these things together. Verse 14, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection, the bond of completeness, the bond of harmony. I think the bond of completeness highlights two things. One, it helps unify the church. It helps bring harmony to the church if we love one another. But also love is a summary of all these virtues. Love is what binds those five things together, those bearing and forbearing together, the tender mercies, kindness, etc., all together. Above all these things, we must seek to do good towards others. And not just do good towards others so we might get a medal. Not just do good towards others that we might be seen by others to look how good we are at doing good to other people, but that we might actually, inwardly and outwardly, seek to love. And love is an action. Love is a dispelling or a, a doing good towards other people. It's defined by what God has said in his word. Patience, kindness, does not envy, does not boast, is not self-seeking, does not rejoice in the truth. First Corinthians 13, Romans chapter 12, define for us what love is. And again, the greatest picture of love is Christ on that cross dying for us. Christ sacrificing himself in our stead that we might have forgiveness and life in him. But love, as we've been loved by God, we ought then to love God and love our fellow brethren, desire to do good towards others. And so the application, dear brethren, is very clear, isn't it? Here's what we must do. Here's how we must live. Here is your kingdom character. Here's how you must live. Here is your new life. Here is your calling. Here is God's plan for you. This. Whatever occupation you are in, this is what you must do. Whatever job you take, this is what you must do. This is God's will for our life. To be tenderhearted, merciful, to be hum humble, meek, and long-suffering. But thanks be to God that there's forgiveness in him, and he bears with us day by day. May we seek to bear with others as well, knowing that we are forgiven in him. Redeemed, saved, died, buried, rose again. Christ really does work. Christ really does save. We've been raised with Christ. And as you set your mind on these things, as we ponder these things, consider these things, so then put on these things. And it is a daily battle, isn't it? a daily cultivation, a daily fight to put off. It's not tomorrow. It's not yesterday. It is a daily thing we must do. It's not one hour. It's a daily thing. And this is all important in light of the overarching context. Remember the heretics, what they were saying? Here's how you grow with God. Don't eat a donut. 
Now, I know they weren't saying quite like that, but I'm just paraphrasing what they were saying. But don't eat meat, then you'll grow with God. Celebrate these festivals, then you grow. With... No, that's not the way we grow. We grow in Christ, being died and buried and raised with him. And according to what he has said, these various virtues he's given, this is how we grow. Not just to put off anger, but to put on tender mercies, put off the vices, put on the virtues, because we have put off the vices and put on the virtues by the power of the spirit in Christ the Lord. This is what you are called to do, dear brethren, adorn Christ by wearing these things. So that's the character we must wear. Let's then look secondly at the peace that rules us, verses 15 through 17. And notice in verses 15, uh, verse 15 and 16, we see the peace that comes from God. Again, these are all commands, by the way, as well. This is where we see our corporate identity. And again, it all goes hand in hand. And notice he says, uh, verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. I always struggle to think about what peace really is. How do we define peace? What does it actually look like? What does it actually mean? Uh, well, certainly the Bible can give us indications about what that is. And certainly peace is the opposite of strife or en enmity, conflict, warfare. Now think about the flow of the book. In Colossians 1, he said we were once enemies. There was once strife. We once were alienated from God most high because of our sin. Now what do we have? Peace with God. Harmony, not because of anything good, but because of Christ who is good and God who is good. That is, we've been reconciled to God. That's what the doctrine of reconciliation teaches us. That's what Christ does. Christ does many things on that cross for us. And one of those things is reconcile actually God to us. God who is perfectly holy cannot dwell with sin. He, has, he must have a uh, dwell with sin in a favorable way. Although it has to be a either his wrath or someone who stands in the stead of his people who bears the wrath upon him, which is what Christ our Lord does. And so we have this peace with God, do we not? Because of Christ. We can have a tranquility of soul because of Christ, not because of anything we have done. And so therefore, if we have this peace with God, it must rule us. It must be something that governs our whole life. Who we are in Jesus must govern everything that we do and govern how we interact with one another and interact with the church. And if we have peace and seek to promote that peace, not at the expense of truth, but seek to promote that peace, there shall be harmony. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. One thing that's interesting too is peace doesn't always mean where everything's going to be perfect. One way to cultivate peace is forbear and forgive, right? So we're going to get angry with one another. We're going to sin against one another. Well, the other thing is we have to be quick to seek forgiveness, quick to recognize our sin, quick to recognize what we have done and go in to find that forgiveness. If someone's wronged us, we go talk to them. If we've wronged someone, we go talk to them. What's the problem? That person wronged me. I got to wait for him. He's got to come talk to me. This person feels wrong. He should come. No, we got to be thinking of the other person. If we only think of ourselves, nothing's going to happen. You see, we must promote the peace of God because we've been redeemed in Christ. We've been reconciled. And if there's issues in the church, there must be reconciliation as 
well. Let it rule an inward disposition wrought by God, supernaturally wrought by the spirit that governs our whole lives. Edie says, let it not be a state of mind admired or envied, but one actually possessed. Let it not be hovering as a hope for blessing on the outskirts of your spirits, but let it be within you. It is a must, dear brethren. All these are a must for God's people. All these are imperatives. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And again, notice where this manifests. He says in verse 15, to which also you were called in one body. And remember, he's talked about what the body is. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's what's called the universal church. Everyone who's been chosen since the foundation of the world, they're called the church who Christ died for. Then we have local churches, expressions of them. Colossae was a local church. Now we do our best to have unity, you know, as much as we're able, but we do not have unity at the expense of truth. But specifically in view here is how we interact as a local church, as members of the body. That is, let the peace of Christ rule in us. And how do we do that? Well, by putting on tender mercies and meekness and long-suffering and humility and bearing and forbearing and forgiving as we interact in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not supposed to, as Davenant says, tear each other limb from limb. We're not supposed to do that, dear brethren. We're not supposed to be easily offended. This person looked at me funny. This person didn't talk to me today. This per- Don't be easily offended, dear brethren. Again, that's what meekness teaches us. We're not supposed to be uh, easily offended in that way. But we are called by Christ to do what is uh, 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 what is according to his word. And he says, let the peace rule in you, to which also you were called in one body, which is the church. And also notice a good antidote or a good helpmate or peace is being thankful. Thankfulness is going to come up again in verse 17. But why is it connected here? Well, perhaps it's the opposite of covetousness, which we saw in verse 5. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Usually covetousness arises because we whine, grumble, and complain. We're the grumbler mumblers, or as uh, um, Albert Martin says, murmuring. You should hear the way he says murmuring. It'll make you not sleep tonight if you hear it the way he says that murmuring how we murmur all the time we grumble and complain about the life god has given to us all the time and if we're going to be sour pusses all the time and grouches all the time it's going to cause an aura in the church and we're going to be easily offended by other people what does god call us to do be thankful Be thankful for the forgiveness we have. Be thankful for the life he's given to us. Be thankful for the gifts he's provided. Brethren, everything we have, temporal and spiritual, is a gift from God. The Bible speaks in this way, Ecclesiastes throughout. Eat and drink, it's a gift from God. Eat and drink, it's a gift from God. Eat and drink, it's a gift from God. The work you have, gift from God. The clothing on your back, gift from God. The salvation you have, gift from God. Everything is a gift from God. And I know that people go through hardship, and I'm not trying to minimize that, but even God says for his people, what man meant for evil, God means for good. It is for our benefit. It is for our blessing. It is 
tough to say sometimes, but it is a gift from God. And maybe there's this thing in life that you want. Maybe there's this, these riches that you want, this home that you want, this car that you, whatever. Maybe God's withholding that from you for a reason. And there's a reason he's doing so that you don't know. That's what God does for us as well. He kind of protects us from the things that would ruin us. And we ought to recognize that he's placed us in this moment according to his sovereign dispensation. And we need to trust him in that and be a thankful people in our hearts, thankful people in our lives, and thankful when we come into the house of God most high. That will help us um, as we seek to live a peaceful life inwardly and outwardly as well. So you must let the peace of God rule, but we must also let the word of Christ dwell in us. Not a visitor in the word, not an acquaintance with the word, but the word must dwell in us. And I've highlighted this so often, but remember for the church at Colossae, they didn't have apps. They didn't have their own personal Bibles. The way in which the word dwelt in them richly was at church and by memorization. There's blessings to uh, technology, but there are curses to technology. And before we could have, you know, information at our fingertips, we just go, I'm just going to look at it later. They didn't have that option. They had to like drill it into their minds to make sure that they understood it and had the Bible in their minds throughout the week. We must let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And even with a million Bibles, and apps where the Bible can read to us. We have men with nice British voices speaking to us. They, they speak and we can just listen as we go about our task. And yet we still don't do that. You see, brethren, we need the word of Christ. How do we put on all these things? You cannot do it without the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. And again, perhaps there is some temple language once again Christ who dwells, who took on human flesh. We saw that in 1.18 and 2.9. The incarnation is Christ's tabernacling among us. Well, we must have that word of Christ dwell in us, how we dwell with him, uh, who is the temple. Christ says his body is the temple, and we dwell with him. And, and that's how, how we have communion with him, because he, what he has done. Well, here again, how does he dwell with us? By his word. So he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing. Where does wisdom come from? Not vain philosophy, not the doctrines of men, but from Christ the Lord. That's what Paul has been saying throughout this letter. It comes from him. And notice how it is, goes forth, how it dwells, teaching and admonishing. And I perhaps some people highlight or there's debate whether a teaching and admonishing goes with the word of Christ or teaching and admonishing goes with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's not really that big of a deal, but I think here it goes with the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ teach and admonish. What we must know, doctrine, truth, what we must understand about Christ, lived, died, and rose again, doctrine's important, but also admonish what we must avoid. Who we are, how we must live, and what we must put off. Warning. And notice, not everybody has to be a preacher to do that. Yes, we have preachers who are called of God, who've been given gifts and graces according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, but we all can, in our families, teach. Wives can teach, mothers can teach their children. 
Doesn't mean they can be a preacher in the household of God, but they can teach their children. We all must know the word of God to be able to teach to those in our lives and admonish, encourage one another. In Hebrews 10, when he says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves, why? That we might stir one another up to love and good works. Yes, the preacher does that, or God does that through the preacher, but hopefully he does that with one another as we're talking of these things and thinking of these things and pondering these things. But we must let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So it must go, it must be taught, it must be admonished, but also uh, it must be sung as well. Notice he says in Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, sing with grace in your hearts. Now, again, teaching and admonishing could go with Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, uh, but certainly singing with grace in your hearts goes with Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. So we believe when it comes to the worship of God, As we gather as the people of God, everything is centered around the word of God. We pray the word, we preach the word, we read the word, and we sing the word. And perhaps there is a debate whether uh, churches should be psalms only or whether spiritual songs should be included. I'm sympathetic to psalms only, but I see the, 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 the benefit of having spiritual songs. Let me explain. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is used in the word in the word of God, and they're descriptive of Psalms. Not to mention that we see let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And how do we have the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Well, Psalms are the word of Christ, are they not? That's why we sing Psalms. That's why we sing at least one Psalm, or I try to each service. So we have the word of Christ being drilled into our minds that way. But perhaps uh, some could be of the persuasion that it doesn't necessarily have to be psalms only, but include hymns that, 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 that are about heavenly matters. And so whether, regardless of where one lands, you cannot sing Mumford and Sons. And you're like, why in the world do you mention Mumford and Sons? It's because I attended a church that sang Mumford and Sons on a Sunday. That's what not, the Sunday is not for that. If we're going to sing hymns, it must be about Christ. It must be about God. It must be about salvation. That's why we sing from the Trinity hymnal and the Psalter. We're not just going back a million years for that reason. It's not just a traditional thing. There's a theology for what we are doing. That is, we want people to be saturated with God's word. I don't think any, anybody, people can say stuff about our church. You, you don't have this program. You don't have that program. Pastor Mike's kind of a jerk. That's fine. But one thing you cannot deny is we are of the word, right? People cannot deny that. We pray it. We sing it. We preach it. We partake of it. That is for sure. And there's a theological, biblical reason for why we do what we do. And there's a biblical theological reason for why we exclude certain songs, sometimes Christian songs that are fine, but they're not meant to be sung on the Lord's Day gathering. Now, if we just said Psalms only, that would solve a lot of that. But um, certainly, well, one can include spiritual and heavenly matters. But notice how important singing is. I know I've made that joke before that we don't stare at each other when we're singing, but kind of like as we sing with the things that we read and we read in the hymnal and read in the Psalter, we're not just singing to God, but we're singing to each other and admonishing, perhaps if you want to put that there and teaching one another. Singing is a blessed thing, dear brethren. We ought not to forsake that as well. And notice how we sing grace in our hearts. 
Grace probably highlights pleasure and a delight in our hearts, our inmost affection. We've been changed. We've been saved. There's no reason we shouldn't sing. There's no reason we shouldn't praise. There's no reason we shouldn't cry out. And even if we come into the house of the Lord weary and heavy laden, there's something about singing and the word of God that Christ meets us and works in us and reminds us of how much we need him. And really all of this teaches us how important the corporate gathering is. I'm not trying to be legalistic with that, but there is a problem of individualism in our modern context. People just want to be an island unto themselves. There's a reason churchmanship has gone down the drain, and there's a reason God's people don't know as much as they used to in generations past. One reason is the second service was taken away. Listen to Dr. Godfrey on that. If you're worried, if you're wondering about the second service, Dr. Godfrey will kick that out of you. Can it really be good that God's people are half as educated? Can it really be that God's people worship God half the time? Can that really be good for the people of God? It is a blessing to be able to gather. Again, we are individually saved. God individually works in us, but he works in us as we gather as the corporate people. That's why 12 through 14, individual identity, 12 through 17 and is corporate identity, but there's certainly individual aspects of that as well. But let the peace of God rule, let the word of Christ dwell, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then we come to verse 17, the conclusion, the purpose of all the summary of our Christian life. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our whole life, our family, our church, our interactions with the world is meant to be in a God-honoring and glorifying way. And that's how we express our thanksgiving. Look what he says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Christian life and good works are part of our gratitude to God for what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. He's redeemed me. He saved me. Here's how I ought to live. Put to death the old vices. Put off the old man and put on the new in the Lord Jesus Christ, honoring and glorifying him in all that we do. In the name of the Son, that is for his glory, but also the name can highlight who we are in him. We've been named and baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also highlight by whose power we do this in Christ's. Whatever you do, word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus by giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I think, again, the application throughout these three verses hopefully is very clear. Let the peace of Christ rule in you. That's a must. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That is a must. And whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks. Those, all these things are a must. Here's who you are. Here's what Christ has done for you. Now live as one who has put on the new man and renewed in him. And may you find joy and assurance as you do such things by the power of the spirit, by the power of the word. This is how we ought to live as God's people, as the new man in him. Now, if you're an unbeliever here today, the same sort of call or the same sort of thing I said last week applies here today. 
the commands to put on all these things and to live in a certain way, that's not for you. The charge for you today is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, because you cannot do any of these things without him. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You have sinned against a thrice holy God. Yeah, the only way to have right standing with him is because of Jesus Christ. Right now you are guilty. The way to be not guilty is fleeing to Christ. Believe that he lived, died, and rose again. And if you do, all your trespasses will be forgiven you. Look to him, you shall find life, and you shall be raised with him. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, thank you for the work that is done in us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work that is done for us uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this blessed doctrine of sanctification that teaches us that we ought to die to sin day by day and grow into the image of our Lord. We ask that you'd help us to put on all these things because we have put on Christ already. Uh, please help us to adorn uh, ourselves and adorn our Lord uh, through how we interact with each other, how we interact with our families and how we interact with the world. Uh, it is such a daunting thing to think of, such a, uh, a discouraging thing sometimes when we see our own hearts and the remaining corruption that is there. And so we ask that you'd forgive us for all the times we have not done this, and they are many. But we ask, O oh God, according to what your word said, that you will give us all that we need. And thank you that you've given us all that we need. And as we seek to honor you, we pray that you give us the supply of the Spirit. Help the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Help us have a peace that surpasses all understanding, especially when there are storms from without. Uh, may we stand firm in Christ Jesus, stand firm in him, and may we walk by faith. We long for our faith to be sight, but we're thankful that as we make our way to that celestial city, uh, you are making us fit for heaven. Thank you that we have our title for heaven in Christ already. Uh, but we long for the new heavens and new earth. We long for a time where there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering. And thank you that when that new heavens and new earth comes, uh, that you wipe away every tear. So may you give us strength by your spirit. May we be a people of your word. May we live our lives according to the scriptures. May we cultivate uh, these virtues that are found in your word. And thank you that we've put on Christ already. Now help us to put on all of these things. Be pleased to save sinners, we pray. Please work in them by your spirit. Give them new life. And may you forgive their sins just as you've forgiven our sins. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.